This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. My name is Kelly Welch, and I am a professor of criminology in the Department of Sociology and Criminology. And I was really eager to do a session on, uh, at the Freedom School this year because I am really passionate about racial justice and particularly in light of events over the last six months or so, um, I feel that I, I want to have my voice heard and do as much as possible to try to increase racial justice. Um, and so this is part of that process. I think there might be a couple seats here. Is anyone sitting in the middle right there? Isabella? There is one seat if you want to crawl over a couple people. Because um, otherwise I'm going to start having people behind me and that'll be, just be weird. Um, so I just want to thank all of you for coming out today and attending this session. Um, and, and I hope that it will be interesting. I've left um, a bunch of time for discussion and questions afterward. So I'd like to hear from a lot of you um, once I finish. So as we get started, I want to begin with an activity. Think to yourself, since this is a, a talk about stereotypes, racial stereotypes in particular, ethnic stereotypes, what sort of racial or ethnic stereotypes are associated with the following types of criminals? Thug. Think to yourself for a moment. Maybe not necessarily your stereotype, but sort of a common one in society. Maybe one that's dominant in the media. Mugger, super predator, serial killer, inside trader, prostitute, drug trafficker, mule, drug lord illegal immigrant, jihadist, terrorist. So I'm thinking that there are probably lots of images going through your mind. And research shows that there are strong stereotypes associated with a lot of these criminal types. And obviously they're not all the same stereotype, but the fact is that racial identity or racial qualities, racial characteristics, have been associated either correctly or incorrectly, and they're very difficult to get rid of. So that is what my talk is about today. Um, this ties together several areas of my research. Hello. There's a little bit of room over here if you want to make your way through. Take a seat if you can clear a little bit. Come on in. So my talk today touches on lots of areas of my research. Um, and I have looked at stereotypes because they are so influential. Stereotypes do matter, especially, especially in the area of crime and punishment. So we all have images in our minds of what a typical offender of various sorts would look like because racial and gender traits are so visible and relatively identifiable, it is easy for us to associate certain crimes with these characteristics when we notice them. And certainly there are lots of other criminal stereotypes that are not racialized or gendered, such as age, economics,
dress, education, and so forth. Further, there are plenty of non-criminal stereotypes that are applied based on race and gender. But today we're going to talk about how racialized criminal stereotypes develop, most frequently with relation to black men, and how they are manifest in different ways, as well as why we must diligently work to destroy them. To say that the construction and application of the law in America is highly racialized is an understatement. Race and crime have become so intertwined in the minds of many that blackness has also become, almost become synonymous with criminality and portrayals of young black men as violent and menacing street thugs is often not even questioned, <coughs> even when that street thug is a 12-year-old little boy on a playground, as was the case with Tamir Rice in Cleveland. Perceptions about the presumed racial identity of criminals is so ingrained in public consciousness that race doesn't even need to be mentioned in order for a connection to be made between the two, because it appears that talking about crime is talking about race, whether we want it to or not. And of course, these perceptions of racialized criminality are what have contributed to racial profiling by law enforcement that has been so concerning. They're also what influences grand juries to see so little evidence of wrongdoing by police officers who shoot unarmed black men and children that they don't even issue indictments to investigate in a trial whether the killings were illegal. Indeed, the interconnection between race and crime in American culture, and increasingly ethnicity and crime, is so historically ingrained that whenever there are incidents of white police officers shooting a black man, the aftermath threatens to unleash explosive racial anxieties that literally stretch back to our nation's founding. A consequence of this fact has been on full display in Ferguson, Missouri. As we know, back in August, a police officer shot and killed an unarmed black teenager named Michael Brown. Unsurprisingly, reports of what actually happened have been conflicting. A friend of Brown's claims that the police treated Brown belligerently, ordering him to get off the sidewalk, after which an altercation ensued, and Brown tried to leave, flee the scene, only to be shot by the officer while his hands were up. By contrast, the police claim that Brown assaulted Officer Darren Wilson, and that after a struggle during which Brown tried to take his gun, Wilson fired on him in self-defense. We're still waiting to learn if the grand jury examining evidence from this incident will indict Wilson for the shooting. But whatever happened, the fact that even the police admit that Brown was unarmed has brought long-standing racial tensions to a boiling point in Ferguson, and the resulting anger has fueled neighborhood protests and a rash of rioting of storefronts that turned Ferguson into an actual battle zone. And actually, they did decide to not indict Wilson. I'm thinking of the case of Eric Garner uh, in New York, uh, where that is still outstanding. Brown's mother maintains that her son was a good-natured individual who just graduated high school and was preparing to attend college. She and the protesters believe that Brown was killed for nothing more than the crime of being black. As with the killing of Trayvon Martin in Florida, Brown's killing sparked national attention. Incidents like those involving Trayvon Martin in Florida, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Eric Garner in New York, and Tamir Rice in Cleveland inspired justified outrage precisely because they are the product of a racist American tradition that has historically linked crime to blackness. 
In the aftermath of Ferguson, there has been an intensified focus on the shockingly violent treatment of blacks by police. Treatment that may be partially a byproduct of racialized criminal stereotypes. However, the racialization of crime and the subsequent harsh consequences that racial stereotypes produce is most definitely not a new phenomenon. This is a problem that is now centuries old and one that every person in America should be opposing. We're hearing more about these kinds of incidents now, not because there's been a sudden rash of murderous police officers inappropriately graduating from the police academy, but because the media is focusing more on these instances of abuse of power, tying incidents to a larger theme. This has been happening for a long time. Let's think about some of the statistics regarding blacks and their interaction with the criminal justice system. For instance, it is intolerable that despite similar rates of criminal offending as whites, blacks are disproportionately stopped and questioned by the police. And once they're identified by the police, we know that blacks are more likely than whites to be arrested. That is if they're not killed on the spot. They're more likely to be charged, convicted, and sentenced by courts. Further, the sentences they receive from the courts tend to be harsher than sanctions received by whites for committing the same offenses. We also know that blacks are more likely than whites to be incarcerated in jail or prison and are less likely to receive the more moderate punishment of probation. Once incarcerated, statistics indicate that blacks are less likely than others to be granted parole. So by virtually every measure, blacks are punished more frequently and more harshly than others for committing the same crimes. And the racial disparities in criminal <laughs> justice treatment become exacerbated at each step of the criminal justice process. So how do these racialized criminal stereotypes develop? Where do they come from? Well, let's explore this. Some have argued that racialized criminal stereotypes develop because blacks are disproportionately involved in crime. Therefore, the stereotype is rooted in reality people correctly assessing how much crime blacks are committing. It is likely that one contributor to the formation of the public's association between blacks and criminality is the sheer number of blacks represented in crime statistics. We would expect that if blacks were disproportionately involved in criminal activity, they would be perceived as being more involved in crime than others. And it is possible that this is true to some extent. If the public sees a lot of black people involved in the criminal justice system, the racialized criminal stereotype gains traction and becomes more compelling. Researchers have suggested that crime committed by blacks may be especially salient not only because it ex exceeds what would be expected based on the racial composition of the country, but also perhaps because the violent crimes that tend to be most fearsome are the ones that are disproportionately committed by black males. However, we know that whites comprise the greatest percentage of criminals and convicts. Although most crime is actually committed by whites, the common perception is that the majority of it is committed by blacks. So while most crimes are not committed by blacks, official crime statistics indicate that blacks have indeed been involved in a disproportional amount of crime relative to their portion of the population. This means that although whites still commit a majority of the crime, blacks commit a greater portion than their representation. The problem with this information, however, is that our official crime statistics represent who gets caught committing crime, which is not the same thing as looking at all crime. Therefore, this is about differential application of the law. The law is not being equally applied to all people. 
There are lots of crimes that don't get reported, don't get pursued, and don't get recorded by the police, which means they never make their way into official crime statistics. So it's possible that racial stereotyping itself is intensifying anti-crime efforts directed toward blacks by way of racial profiling, which then produces a greater number of arrests, charges, and convictions of blacks, thereby reinforcing the belief that blacks present a greater criminal threat than others. This is not only that harsher treatment of blacks causes people to stereotype them as criminals, but rather the stereotyping of, criminal, of blacks as criminals also increases the extent to which they are treated as such by the criminal justice system. So let's think about blacks and punishment. The reality that the criminal justice system, including law enforcement, courts, and corrections, encounters and processes a number of minority offenders that far surpasses their representation in the general population may corroborate the common notion that being black equates with criminality. One source of the racial stereotyping of criminals may be the large presence of blacks in the criminal justice system. Studies on race and sentencing have shown that young black males are sentenced more severely than members of other racial or ethnic groups for doing the same crimes. Research on the treatment of defendants in court proceedings shows that prosecutors sometimes take advantage of and perpetuate racial stereotypes by characterizing blacks as particularly prone to violent criminality, which results in higher conviction rates and stiffer sentences. It's reasonable to expect that prosecutors will persist with this kind of practice if it produces more successful outcomes for them. When the public sees not only that such a large portion of those convicted and sentenced by criminal courts are black, but they are, that they are punished more harshly than whites, the message conveyed to the public is that blackness and criminality are inextricably linked. Meanwhile, it would appear that whatever racial differences exist at the level of behavior are amplified by differences at the level of incarceration, as well as other forms of criminal sanctions. It's widely recognized that a disproportionate number of blacks are under some sort of correctional supervision. About 25% of black men ages 20 to 29 are under some form of correctional authority. Blacks are almost seven times more likely to be incarcerated than whites, which means that the odds that a black man will do time at some point in his life are about one in three, and for whites, it's about one in 25. Encountering some sort of criminal punishment from the justice system has become something of an expectation for many young black men because statistically, many of them will be punished by the criminal justice system at some point during their lives. Thus, racial stereotyping and racially profiling criminals becomes justified because by targeting predominantly black communities, law enforcement has been catching more black criminals their predictions are being confirmed. But this means to some extent that they haven't been catching criminals in predominantly white communities. Another contributor to racially disparate criminality is differential construction of the law. Some laws indirectly target minorities because they criminalize things that minorities are more likely to do. So while the laws may be applied justly and fairly in these circumstances, the mere fact that certain behaviors have been made illegal or are linked with particularly harsh punishments may be discriminatory. Take the well-known example of many of the drug laws that came out of the war on drugs movement of the 1980s. This was a powerful contributor to the stereotyping of criminals as black because the drugs that were most highly targeted were those that were disproportionately used by blacks whereas the drugs that whites used more frequently did not receive as much focus. 
This war on drugs had a significant impact on the black population by funneling much of it through the criminal justice system as a result of the passage of strict crack cocaine laws in particular. Crack was generally re recognized as a relatively inexpensive drug that was predominantly used by impoverished racial minorities. They didn't pay much attention to it before the 1980s. The pervasive dialogue regarding this war conveyed the message to the public that the problem of crack cocaine, thought previously to be common only to minority communities, was suddenly spreading to a very panicked white America. However, Americans were already familiar with cocaine before the drug war. Prior to the so-called crack <coughs> epidemic, powder cocaine was prevalent in white communities with little acknowledgement from law enforcement. It's only when this drug was transformed into a relatively affordable and accessible variety that began to be used predominantly by blacks that it became prioritized as a target of policymakers and the criminal justice system. This helped to promote punitive policies that hit the black population particularly hard, including mandatory minimum sentencing statutes like three strikes on your outlaws um, and so forth. Of course, mandatory minimum sentencing policies require a certain punishment for a certain crime, removing any discretion from the judge or a jury. Um, and so by creating mandatory punishments for crimes that blacks were more likely to do, more blacks were getting harsh mandatory sentences that they couldn't get out of or they couldn't um, try to defend very well. National crime statistics indicate that most racial and ethnic groups consume illegal drugs at approximately similar rates. Blacks, however, account for about 75% of the nation's drug prisoners, which reveals the extreme disparity manifested in the national crackdown on the drug problem. So this is really about who's getting busted by the criminal justice system for drugs, not who's actually using drugs. The suggestion has been made that the war on drugs may have been more appropriately referenced as a war on blacks or a war on black drug use because because of the discriminatory way the laws were both constructed and applied. A more general consequence of this is that many may have come to associate blacks with drug use and drug use with blacks. The consumption of illegal drugs, therefore, is a very specific racially typified phenomenon that has produced very punitive consequences for minorities, including the disproportional incarceration of blacks despite rates of drug use that are similar to those of other races. Aside from the actual invol involvement of blacks in crime in the criminal justice system, other potential contributors to the profiling of criminals as young black males may be various media sources. The media provide readily accessible depictions of criminality which may help to shape perceptions about crime and subsequent justice practices. Research aimed at examining the racial content of televised newscasts in Chicago, for example, found that they commonly portrayed accused black criminals in scowling mugshots or in video clips being led around in handcuffs by white police officers. In fact, it is well established that there is a disproportionate amount of media coverage devoted to violent crimes for which black males are more likely than others to be arrested. Thus, the image of violent criminals as young black males has been routinely reinforced. These images are so widespread and so powerful that it would not be surprising if much of American society has subconsciously come to accept the visual portrayal of blacks as criminals in contemporary society. We see this effect in all types of media. The get tough media advertising rhetoric of politicians, conservative and liberal alike, aspiring to elevate partisan popularity, 
frequently manipulates the fear and indignation of citizens by conjuring fright-inducing images. Research on news media influence has concluded that blacks are indeed more likely to appear as criminally threatening on local television news, suggesting that this may encourage the social construction of threat in relation to blacks. <coughs> we know that blacks are more often portrayed as threatening in mugshots and are more frequently depicted without using a name, which would denote humanity identity. Blacks also more frequently appear in the media for victimizing a stranger or someone of a different race. But research also shows that the manner in which black suspects appear may be more influential in terms of how the public perceives black criminals than how often they appear as criminals. One study found that when blacks and whites were shown in local television news stories, blacks were much more likely than their white counterparts to be portrayed as criminals, as opposed to police officers or role models or students or professors, than other kinds of positive figures. Thus, the qualitative aspects of race and crime in a news story may be as consequential as the frequency with which blacks appear as criminals in helping to shape public perceptions about race and criminal threat. Another possible contributor to the practice of racial profiling and stereotyping of blacks as criminals is the use of what is called the racial hoax. Racial hoaxes are false allegations of criminal involvement based on the race of a fabricated perpetrator, used in order to deflect attention away from the individual making the false accusation, who is typically the actual criminal in any of these events. Not surprisingly, the use of this decoy has had the most direct and consequential impact on the black community, since the racial hoax has most frequently referenced a nameless black offender. The supposed purpose of specifying the race of an invented offender is to exploit pre-existing notions about racial proclivities for committing crime in order to add a component of believability to the false accusation. So these are people who are making up stories about crimes or trying to cover up things they did themselves and rather than just saying, oh, someone must have done this, they say, a black someone did this and I saw him. This highlights the unfortunate state of much of the public's prevailing view of crime, that blacks run around committing depraved, unprovoked acts of violence against whites. Inferential racism sustains the persistence of the racial hoax by depicting an apparently naturalized representation of events and situations relating to race, whether they're factual or they're made up, that has a racist premise etched throughout it, an unquestioned assumption. These enable racist statements to be formulated without ever bringing into awareness the racist predicates on which the statements are grounded. The racial hoax relies on racist attitudes to even work. Therefore, the phenomenon of the racial stereotyping of crime must exist at some level in order for the racial hoax to seem at all compelling to people. The incident that has probably received the greatest amount of attention is a situation involving a woman named Susan Smith in 1994. Um, she, um, in order to misdirect the investigation, Smith told emergency operators, as well as both state and federal law enforcement officials, that she'd been carjacked by a young black man while her two sons were in the car. This elicited widespread concern and offers of assistance to the supposed white victim of a ruthless black crime. 
It was a couple of weeks after the report that Smith admitted to having murdered her own children by drowning them in her car. Some of you may recall a relatively recent local example of a racial hoax. In 2009, a woman from Bucks County named Bonnie Ann Sweeten frantically called Philadelphia police saying that she and her nine-year-old daughter had been kidnapped by two black men and stuffed in the trunk of their car. An investigation began, Amber Alerts were issued, the media were involved, but the next day it was discovered to be a racial hoax because they discovered her and her daughter at Disney World under an assumed name. There have been many other less sensational racial hoaxes involving white accusers and fictional black criminals, and research has shown that in the great majority of instances of individuals being used in a racial hoax, there is no apparent reason to have identified the suspect as black except to capitalize on society's fear and anxieties about a racialized criminal type. What makes the <coughs> racial hoax even more insidious is that it not only capitalizes on existing racial stereotypes of criminals, but it reinforces them by perpetuating more stories about blacks and crime that may be solidified in the public psyche and eventually manifest in criminal justice policy and enforcement. The racial hoax relies on the black criminal stereotype to evade suspicion, and it also perpetuates it through its use. After reviewing several explanations for why black criminal stereotypes have developed and per persisted, I hope it is clear that stereotypes are not inconsequential. They have practical implications in policy and in what happens um, in, in our society. My own research has shown that the stereotyping of blacks as criminals has the powerful ability to increase public punitiveness. People who stereotype criminals as being black are more supportive of myriad harsh criminal justice measures, such as the death penalty, locking up more juvenile offenders, waiving more juvenile offenders to adult court, making prisoners work on chain gangs and the like, things that are considered relatively punitive, than those who do not show these racialized criminal stereotypes. Among the tactics that seemingly make sense in light of these stereotypes is racial profiling by law enforcement that ensures a disproportionate number of minorities and blacks in particular are funneled into the criminal justice system where racialized stereotypes of criminals can further influence decision making at all levels. What this means is that the stereotypes are not just the result of punitive criminal justice systems, racially unequal practices, but they are also a contributor to it. People who stereotype criminals as black are more punitive in their policy preferences. Those policies then disproportionately target minorities, thereby apparently confirming those stereotypes. But research shows that there have been dire effects of criminal stereotypes for other minorities as well. So, blacks in America, as we've discussed, have long experienced the burden and distress of racialized criminal stereotypes. But members of other minority groups have also been unfairly attributed with certain kinds of criminality. For instance, Hispanics have been stereotyped as dangerous drug traffickers and users, prone to violence, and predatory gangbangers. Particularly in the Southwest, Hispanics are frequently stereotyped as illegal immigrants or mules. Therefore, it is not surprising that studies examining ethnicity and crime indicate that those of Hispanic descent are disproportionately profiled, arrested, charged, convicted, sentenced, and punished when compared to whites who are not ethnically Hispanic. While there are certainly 
there, there certainly are Hispanic individuals who have trafficked and used drugs, committed acts of violence, been fervent gang members, and have entered the U.S. without the proper documentation and approvals. They are most definitely not the only ones who have done these things. And even more importantly, the majority of those of Hispanic descent have not committed any of these offenses. Given that the Hispanic population is now the largest and fastest growing minority in the United States, I would expect that these ethnic disparities evident in the criminal justice system will continue to expand. As with racial and ethnic stereotypes of criminals, ethnic and religious stereotypes linking terrorism to Middle Easterners are widespread and may be at least partially responsible for fueling some degree of punitiveness toward terrorism. Those of Middle Eastern descent, including many Arabs, Muslims, and others, are often believed to be hateful, dangerous, and violent. Considering various media depictions of terrorists as apparently Middle Eastern, it is not surprising that these stereotypes exist. However, the truth is that they're far from accurate. While it should be obvious that most Middle Easterners, Arabs, and Muslims are not terrorists, it is also true that most terrorists have not originated in the Middle East or from Muslim groups. Notably, portrayals of Middle Easterners as terrorists have some important similarities with entrenched criminal stereotypes that have typically been applied to black and Hispanic men. Specifically, they've all been the subject of threatening stereotypes. However, unlike with the stereotyping of blacks and Hispanics as criminals, the stereotyping of Middle Easterners as terrorists has become almost respectable. Further, because the terrorist stereotype is not just limited to race, ethnicity, nationality, or religion, the profile of a terrorist has been applied to individuals who are not Middle Eastern, Arab, or Muslim. As with criminal stereotypes toward blacks and Hispanics, terrorist stereotypes of Middle Easterners have had striking consequences. Although U.S. punitiveness toward terrorism is far from new, since the September 11th attacks, the U.S. has become increasingly harsh in its response to it. Some of these punitive responses include intrusive government screening of airline passengers, passage of the Patriot Act, creation of the Department of Homeland Security and TSA, my students know that I don't like the TSA, increased surveillance capabilities, lifted restrictions on foreign intelligence gathering, mandatory registration of immigrants with INS, diminished due process rights for pretrial detainees, and torture of suspects in offshore prisons. Since 9-11, the American public has also demonstrated considerable support for harsh national policies aimed at preventing terrorism and punishing suspected terrorists. When the Patriot Act was first proposed, the public expressed overwhelming support for its passage, despite the criticism that it's encountered since that time. After the attacks, over half of Americans felt that immigration laws should be tightened. Recent surveys show that many Americans support placing Arabs, Arab Americans, and Muslims in the U.S. under special surveillance and limiting their civil liberties. Public support for ethnic profiling and special screening at airports has also increased since 9-11. Airline passenger concerns about appearances of other passengers, such as wearing long beards or headscarves, has led to numerous unsubstantiated requests that the individuals in question be removed from flights, some of which were met with success. The incidence of hate crimes and threats against individuals perceived to be of Middle Eastern descent rose sharply. In addition, there were a number of racial-type hoaxes related to perceived Middle Easterners that involved false allegations of terrorist activity. 
Beyond this, widespread reports of public religious bias, anti-Arab discrimination, and prejudice against perceived Middle Easterners and Muslims have been made since 9-11. While vehemently focusing on preventing terrorism in the aftermath of a terrible tragedy is certainly understandable, research, my own research, has shown that those who harbor stereotypes of Middle Easterners as terrorists are significantly more likely to support the harsh responses that defy civil liberties. It is this stereotype of terrorists that drives a substantial portion of the support for these punitive policies. Which is to say that these policies are not simply the rational result of well-reasoned intentions. Stereotypes have real consequences for people, most of whom don't deserve them. Aside from the evidence that stereotypes of racial and ethnic minorities are associated with punitive criminal justice consequences, research also shows that the effects of minority stereotypes have permeated other institutions as well. A real tragedy is that the same pattern of stereotypes increasing harsh treatment exists for black students in schools who are disproportionately disciplined, suspended, and expelled for breaking the same rules as white kids fortifying what has been termed the school-to-prison pipeline effect, because that is a likely consequence for those who are treated as criminals from the time they are young. The school-to-prison pipeline is a term suggesting that minority students are essentially criminalized from the time they are children, despite, behaving, beha despite um, displaying behavior and acting out that is similar to that of their white peers. Kids act out. Some of my own research co-authored with Dr. Payne here at Villanova has shown that schools with relatively more black students disproportionately use punitive disciplinary approaches, such as suspension and expulsion, independent of influences like the types and levels of delinquency in those schools, student and school economic status, gender, urbanicity, faculty training, all sorts of characteristics that you might associate with schools using particularly harsh punishment. Even while controlling for those effects, there is an effect of how many black kids are in that school on what type of discipline they use. We also know that schools with more black students are likelier to use metal detectors, drug sniffing dogs, have police officers, armed police officers on the school, and implement harsh zero tolerance policies. So instead of addressing student behavioral problems with restorative measures like counseling or parent-teacher conferences or adding additional educational resources to the school or more so social support, which is what schools with more white students tend to do, schools with greater percentages of black students are resorting to harsh measures that are likely to exacerbate the school-to-pipeline, school-to-prison pipeline effect. The misbehavior of black youth is then addressed with harsher discipline that, in many ways, mimics sanctions in the criminal justice system, thereby more or less ushering those kids into a life of crime, because getting into trouble at school and missing educational opportunities will make it more difficult to be hired into the workforce or to get into college, much less graduate from high school. So not only do the trends in school policies and punishment mirror those that are sanctioned by the criminal justice system, but part of the reason is also similar race and perceptions of inherent criminality. This means that what we're seeing in relation to blacks in the criminal justice system is also happening to black students in schools. And my current research with Dr. Payne suggests a similar pattern in predominantly Hispanic schools as well. So how do we think about all of this going forward? Just because 
race has become so criminally typified and crime has become so racially typified in this country does not mean that nothing can or should be done about it. Something can and must be done about it. This now is a moment of civic awakening and a reawakening for many. While protesting and speaking out and demanding to have our voices heard about race and injustice is vitally important, this social movement gripping much of the American public must also involve action to change the structural injustices that are supported by our system. The most direct way most of us can change policy is to vote. Elect leaders who will support our demands for equality and justice. Vote for policies that reduce economic and racial disparities in all realms of social life, whether that's in the criminal justice system, schools, healthcare, the government, military, or the workforce. Demand that our laws be constructed and applied in a race-free manner. Following the path established by Martin Luther King Jr., we should also consider the value of peaceful protest as a strategy to demand change. We may also wish to consider the value of civil dis disobedience in producing change. Perhaps many of the students here will one day enter jobs that will allow them to increase racial justice. When those with authority are no longer able to get away with using race or ethnicity to diminish, oppress, and punish minorities in ways and numbers that would never be tolerated for whites, the racially stereotypical image of blacks and Hispanics as criminals and Middle Easterners as terrorists will lose power and will cease to be compelling to law enforcement and the public that seemingly permits racially disparate behavior from them. The horrifying reality of racially and ethnically unequal justice can eventually decline, but it requires that we maintain the fervor of this moment. It requires that we not only use our words of opposition, but that we are diligent and forceful with our actions against racial tyranny and that we do not quit until we have achieved the justice that minorities and our society so thoroughly deserve. This is part of Martin Luther King's dream, and we've been waiting far too long to see it realized. So with that, I'd like to open the floor to all of you for comments, questions, thoughts. Yeah, Nick. Um, I completely agree with most of the stuff you're saying, but like, one thing I guess that bothers me is like Mike Brown or Trayvon Martin and all of them. Um, I think that was turned into a race issue when it was actually a matter of right or wrong. And I think the media really, like you said, and like the chapters in our book say, I think the media really, it really, really clings to that because it's newsworthy and that's what people want. And it does uh, even more strengthen the negative and wrongdoing of stereotypes. But, um, I think some things are turned into a racing when they really aren't, like from media and others. Um, and I'm, I'm completely all for getting rid of stereotypes, but I'm kind of curious as to how. Because in my mind, I just think that's something that's always going to be. I think it's a very hard thing to tackle. Um, thank you for for being the first one to speak out. Um, you know, you raise a couple of interesting issues here. One is that perhaps the media should be focusing more on right and wrong. Um, the other is that you're not quite seeing how race is the dominant issue and then um, kind of the futility of sort of discussing these kinds of things. I'll start with the third point first, and that is thinking about Irish and Italian immigrants into this country because at one time there were strong criminal stereotypes about them, lots of negative racial stereotypes that have 
you know, sort of historically exist, that like we know about them, but are not actually used to, um, to their detriment today. So I, I don't feel hopeless about it. I do feel, I do feel hopeful that with enough education and enlightenment that um, justice will prevail um, with regard to blacks and Hispanics and Middle Easterners and anyone else who is the subject of negative stereotypes that impact their lives. Uh, well, the, you had two other points, so I just want to get to those as well, which is that um, obviously what happened in these, the situations that I mentioned are wrong, and so that should clearly be one of the dominant issues. But I think people have really um, focused on the racial aspect of it because of the nature of what's happened and the statistics that I mentioned. So for example, when Tamir Rice was shot, the police officer shot him from his car from afar within 1.5 seconds of pulling up. So really the only cue he had to go on was seeing a gun, and of course in Ohio there's an open carry law, so having a gun in itself is not illegal. And so the only thing that really could have triggered his action is the racial element of it. Um, and so, you know, there were, there, these are just instances. I think they have really triggered um, outrage because they represent so many other interactions that may not end with police killing someone, but that result in disparate treatment. Um, and so I, I do see that, that race and ethnicity have been um, prominent issues here. You know, there may be lots of things about people that, that could trigger stereotypes, but you don't see them right away. You have to talk to someone to figure out maybe where they're from or what their socioeconomic status is or other things that could be associated with stereotypes and discrimination. But race is relatively obvious. But thank you for your comment. Yeah. Uh, good afternoon, ma'am. Uh, first of all, thank you for your comments. Uh, tremendously enjoyed it. Oh, thanks. I'd like to raise two issues just for discussion. The first being about the, um, the drug war, mm -hmm. uh, specifically cocaine versus crack. Um, just thinking mathematically, isn't it natural to assume that crack is the more dangerous drug because it is cheap, just by virtue of the number of people who can buy it and use it? Um, just to me, that like, obviously crack is more dangerous because naturally more people use it because it's cheaper. This is a function of math. Um, secondly, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how rhetoric coming from like Daesh, Al Qaeda, Taliban, like the state of Iran, um, about how those play into Muslim stereotypes of Middle Eastern stereotypes. I'm sorry, repeat the last thing you just said. Um, how rhetoric coming from groups such as mm -hmm. Al Qaeda, mm -hmm. the Taliban, Daesh, or ISIL, mm -hmm. or whatever it is nowadays, um, right. and even the state of Iran. Um, which is expressing pretty negative anti-Western sentiment, mm -hmm. how those play into public perceptions of those nationalities, ethnicities, religions, and mm -hmm. sort of, yeah. Um, thank you. The, I'll start with the second <laughs> one first, in that um, I think, you know, we, we see all of the, the media covers all of this stuff, and it's, it's horrible, and it's, I condemn it. I, I, you know, um, I think there's no room for that kind of hate in our world. But we don't see, because we're not being particularly threatened currently, you know, the terrorists in Russia, for example, who are not ethnically different, um, but <coughs> most are white. So there are, there are lots of other terrorists around the world who are white, not ethnic or racial minorities. And so 
I'm not saying that just because Al-Qaeda and those other groups you mentioned are Middle Eastern means that we shouldn't pay attention to what they're doing. It just means that the, the stereotype that we associate with terrorists is unfairly um, impacting Middle Easterners or people who look Middle Eastern who are not terrorists. Um, and so that's where the real problem is, where we are seeing um, them victimized by hate crimes and uh, unfairly targeted by policies just because their skin is brown. And so that's, that's kind of where, where I'm, my angle is coming from on that. With regard to the drug laws, you know, it's, you raise an interesting point in that having more people high on some form of cocaine <coughs> is going to increase a lot of social problems. And it, inc it increased other kinds of crime as well when more people started being on it. So yes, that is problematic. Perhaps the biggest question though is why was powder cocaine that white people were using not similarly targeted? If cocaine is bad, why not target all the cocaine, including the, the drugs that white people were using? But they were specifically targeting only the drugs that were most common among poor blacks and poor minority communities. So you have a good point, but I think equal treatment would have been a more appropriate approach. play into this issue because um, shouldn't making those things more accessible and more equal theoretically like help people have access to better attorneys and the legal system and things like that? Absolutely. So there are factors that exacerbate the effect of um, the relationship between race and crime and certainly socioeconomic status is one of them. Education is an another one of them. Um, and so improving those things should help pull very disadvantaged people out of very bad conditions. Um, and that could have an effect on people's perception. Um, however, there's been a lot of research that, that really shows that race has its own effect. So controlling for economic status, controlling for education, there is still stereotyping, there's still bias, there's still discrimination, even beyond those factors. So yes, I think it would improve it, but it wouldn't get rid of it altogether. And so perhaps we need a more multi-pronged approach when trying to increase racial justice. Yes. Um, I agree with all the things you were saying. I think one additional area that should be addressed is like the rap hip hop culture. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely think like a lot of it is glorifying street culture and then vice versa. They're both copying like fashion styles. And then they're like chart-topping artists that are like accepted into the mainstream. Like Villanova brings like these artists to another songs, and like other people within their groups are, I mean, like someone's named Young Thug who was in like the same group as Nicki Minaj. Um, and they're chart-topping songs uh, called "Move That Dope." Uh, Bobby Shmurda, whose rap alias his last name runs with the felony. And that's pretty mild compared to a lot of the song yeah. lyrics that I've heard that that right, talk about other kinds of crimes. I think you have a really good point. So when I talked about media, really, that is included in the media because if that's what we're hearing, and these are popular songs, you know, I listen to them, and I'm a professor, but I hear it, and I'm thinking, you know, it's. I can understand that they're coming from a place where they've been stereotyped as this, and so assuming some of that identity in order to try to gain power from it, um, 
could be one source of motivation for it. But then sort of the downside of that is that it reinforces the stereotype because if we're hearing about them committing, you know, drug crimes and murders and other sorts of, you know, assaults, you know, violence against women in a lot of these songs, <laughs> it, you know, just further confirms the stereotype that this is what they're doing and just these people are the ones singing about it. Good point. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of curious because uh, since I guess social injustice or race injustice and stereotype injustice goes both ways, um, uh, something I really notice a lot, which I'm kind of curious as to maybe why, is how we do focus so hardly, and it is wrong, on black stereotypes, but like, for example, um, Howard Stern said the uh, a negative racial comment, and he got pretty reprimanded for that. But in rap songs and everything else, it's, you know, I think it's a cracker hockey and everything else, but but if it were a white man saying a racist comment, automatically people are all over it. But I, a lot of the times here, it goes the other way, and it's just completely fine. No one speaks up because it's like, oh, you're racist. I'm just curious how that. I mean, there's no way to explain that sort of thing. It just depends on how different people take things. You know, if you listen to Eminem songs, you're going to hear some some racially insensitive um, lyrics, and uh, you know. I can't, I can't explain why some people would get upset about one thing and not the other thing, although I do think that people have gotten upset about those things too, but it hasn't gained the traction or the media coverage that things, you know, that criticisms of Howard Stern would get. So, I mean, yes, there are people who are biased and say discriminatory things and sometimes, you know, we focus on it and sometimes we just move on. Um, we should probably pay more attention to those kinds of things. Other comments? It's been said that uh, like the criminal justice system has become the new form of, gym, of the Jim Crow system. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've heard that before. Mm -hmm. what do, you, yep. do you agree with it? What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at our country's history and the various tactics that we've used over the decades in order to oppress minorities, blacks in particular, it just seems like this is our current method because our criminal justice system really started to grow right around the time of the civil rights movement, you know, in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, when all of a sudden blacks were gaining more rights. Um, it seems like, well, we aren't able to oppress that group of people anymore this way, so now let's use a different institution to try to oppress them. So I, I definitely see that happening. I mean, if you, ex if you examine our, our country's history, you can see that there has been some major mechanism throughout time that does this sort of thing, sadly and it needs to change. Oh, yes. Do you feel like that's like deliberate or more like a like subconscious kind of way of doing things? That's a really good question. If you didn't hear, she asked if it was deliberate or more of a subconscious sort of effect. And I think <coughs> that's really hard to tell. I think for some people it probably is deliberate. Who People who are, are you know, they know they're racist. But I would say that the majority of pe the people in the United States aren't racists, but rather we are, have become so used to these images and these ideas that we're not necessarily being actively racist by supporting them, but it is a consequence of supporting policies that you know, unequally target minorities, where the, the law is applied differently, it's constructed differently based on who's doing the various activities. And so, I do think that there is a sort of a negligence 
in much of the population support for certain policies. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you were at um, Brown Stevenson's talk. I was, yes. Um, so one of the big things he talked about was getting proximate to the issues that we right. can mm -hmm. um, work on and work to eliminate. Um, with something like this where it's the criminal justice, justice system where you know, not everybody can go in and, and work in the system, not everybody can intern there, mm -hmm. what, what do you think are maybe some ways that we as students or as you know, future people in the workplace um, can get proximate to these issues um, without necessarily having to become a lawyer? Right. No, that's an excellent question. So if you didn't hear, she was asked, uh, Brian Stevenson, who was here and gave the keynote talk for the um, Martin Luther King uh, Day event, said that it's important for people to get proximate to racial injustice so that we can understand it and then do something about it. We have to actually get close to the problem rather than, you know, just staying in our ivory tower doing, you know, do, speaking from afar doesn't do much. We need to sort of be in it in order to really create change. And so as I was, I was writing the talk for today, I was thinking, all right, well, how can you do it? Like become judges who are not racist, become lawyers, you know, become a defense attorney like Brian Stevenson. Um, but the truth is that's, that's not right for everybody. And so I began thinking there are lots of ways that in any kind of job you can have an impact to increase racial justice. As a teacher, as a business person, making hiring decisions, supporting, supporting business policy that is good for communities, that helps um, decrease poverty. There, there's so many things that can be done in every kind of job. Um, and so I think, you know, I would like to encourage everyone <coughs> to be creative in how they can take their dream and their mm -hmm. desire and, and enact racial justice from that point. Thank you. Nice one. <laughs> so someone, wait, we have someone who hasn't spoken yet. Yes. Sorry, so over the break, there were a couple of police shootings, I mean, like African American shooting um, police officers, and there's this supposed reorganization of like the Ku Klux Klan. I guess my question is what is your opinion or comments on the violent aspect of solving this? Um, uh, that's a great question. She asked what I thought about um, the violence that some people are using in order to try to increase racial justice. Um, I, I think that violence is not the answer, that violence will not work. Um, I think certainly strong civil disobedience uh, could be a useful tool, um, but not something that is going to um, hurt innocent people, um, you know, or uninnocent people. I think anything violent probably is not going to be helpful uh, to increase racial justice at all. Okay. Um, two questions. What kind of challenges So with groups like the KKK and the Black Panthers, I mean, the truth is that they're relatively marginalized right now. They're not the majority. I mean, they don't have much power in today's society, either of them. And so, you know, as long as they are following the Constitution and obeying the law, they are allowed to exist in our country. So 
Right. So, you know, I think education uh, and knowing about what all of it means would be useful, but I don't think um, as long as they are following the Constitution that we should necessarily do anything about it. I think they'll become increasingly marginalized as more people become aware of these issues. Yes? Um, on a smaller note, I've always been interested in the, the role of stereotypes in like social settings and like smaller, I know you mentioned about the, the Middle Eastern people getting taken off of airplanes because mm -hmm. people felt uncomfortable. Um, I was just curious like how you felt about the idea of like internal stereotypes just like kind of people staying away from certain people just out of like, I know it's fueled by everything you've talked mm -hmm. about today, but like in terms of like if I, you know, I'm walking through Philadelphia and I see some like bigger guys or tough looking guys like it's almost a natural inclination to stay away from that yet I think it fits into the problem that you're talking about mm -hmm. so I was just curious as to like what your thoughts on that were thank you for your honesty and that and I think a lot of people feel the same way and they don't have the courage to to admit it um, stereotypes are so common so the the idea that a trigger would go off in your mind because of all the influences I've talked about before would make sense However, acting on that, crossing the street or, you know, not looking at someone further alienates people who've done nothing wrong. Um, and so there are these, those subtle sort of forms of discrimination. It's not like you're not giving someone a job because of it, but by not sort of treating them as you would treat, you know, a white person walking down the street is, is just a subtle form of, of bias that I think can be really... Um, hurtful for our society. So how, you know, how do you, how do you defy, how do you break this, the stereotype so that you don't respond to those kinds of feelings? And I think the fact that you're recognizing them is the first step toward being able to defeat them. Um, and I, I appreciate that you acknowledge your own struggle with that. So just to follow up though, like, would you, would you agree that possibly those are natural things? Maybe not so much uh, the racial and ethnic stereotypes, but just, um, I don't know, different types of things that we feel in certain situations when we feel unsafe or when we feel nervous <coughs> that kind of spark those feelings in us. Would you agree that those are a problem as well or that they're just something natural that we have to try to not let us let affect our views of other people? I mean, I think what's natural is that we have internalized all the information that we receive and that's from media and that's from what other people have told us and it comes from our own prior experiences. And so we respond to that. Um, and so that is natural. You know, if you talk to women, a lot of them would say that if there are a bunch of, of big guys and, and the woman's alone, she probably doesn't want to be there. Um, and it's not because of anything those men have done, but just sort of, you know, stereotypes of groups of men or women being alone and that kind of thing. So it is natural. However, I think succumbing to them is not something that is um, necessary. So, like I said, I would, I would, recognizing that it's going on can help us to determine, am I, really in, like, am I really possibly threatened right now, or am I just assuming because of the color of someone's skin that I'm in a threatened position? Sure. Did I see a hand in the back, on the back wall? Yeah. I guess to his point, and Mark, you've been commenting on this also, it's also like the appearance and dress, not just the race. I feel like um, any person in life Coat shoes and a polo sweater, like I wouldn't feel threatened. But if someone were wearing fashion threat, <laughs> so 
someone wearing like baggy jeans or like something that emulated the hip hop culture of Scratch that emulated the criminal culture mm -hmm. that would be a rightful reason to be concerned. That's an excellent point. That's an excellent point. So there are additional cues other than race, of course. You know, with the case of like Tamir Rice, there wasn't really an opportunity to digest any of the other characteristics of um, him. He had a, a toy gun on a playground, so he was playing with a toy gun. Was the like, yellow tip like scratched off? Right, so the, the orange tip was scratched off. However, you know, did he even see that? He was relatively far away. He was in a moving car, 1.5 seconds, shot him from the car. So what was the first thing he did, like pull out the gun? The Tamir? Well, he was like playing with it. Like, yeah, he was just sort of like playing with it on the playground. So when the police officer drove out, it was like out. However, in Ohio, you're allowed to have a gun, a real gun, out. So even though it had the orange tip scratched off, he should have been allowed to do it. It wasn't like he was shooting anything. He was just, you know, being a kid playing with a toy. Gotcha. Yeah. But being 12, um, I would assume the <coughs> officer knows that he is not allowed to carry. And um, I know from personal experience, I was 12 years old, and I was playing with my buddy out back in my house uh, with the cap gun with no orange tip. And they pulled their guns on me and my friend, and uh, literally locked like locked us up over a, a toy gun. So like, I think you have a good point. Although when he made that, when the call was made that someone had been shot, he reported that the victim was 20. So he didn't think he was 12. He thought he was 20. And of course, if you've seen a picture of him, yeah. he looks 12. But yeah, I just didn't. I mean, but but that that. What's that? I think that was through the parents also. <coughs> the parents of whom? Whose parents? It probably has to do with everyone's parents. It could be. Right now, I mean now, oh, especially after that. Any further comments? Well, thanks so much for being here and for your great participation.